Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. Get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. KQED Public Radio, I'm Michael Krasny. Coming up, firefighters have built containment lines around a third of the lightning fires in the North Bay and to the east of San Jose. Progress in the Santa Cruz Mountains is slower, and we're going to get the latest. And then, Wildfire 101. We're hearing a lot of words like containment and defensible space. And what's a Bambi bucket? We'll talk to firefighters and others who can translate the language of wildfire for the rest of us. That's all next, after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. Coming up in this hour, we're going to get an update on the Bay Area wildfires, then everything you want to know about wildfire but are afraid to ask. What does containment mean and how big is an acre and what kinds of vegetation are most likely to burn? Which is worse when flames back down or lay down? We'll talk to firefighters and others who can translate these terms for the rest of us. We'll also hear what it's like getting up close to the fires and how best to protect your home from wildfire. And joining us for the hour is Cal Fire Public Information Officer Patrick O'Connor. Captain O'Connor, good to have you with us. Welcome. Nice to be here with you. Thank you for the time. And again, Patrick O'Connor is Cal Fire Public Information Officer, also fire captain at the City of Reading Fire Department. Uh, I'd like to begin just by getting an update from you, Captain O'Connor, if you could. These three fires are still blazing. Uh, that's the bad news, uh, but there is there certainly is progress. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, first and foremost, thank you for inviting me on, and um, it's a pleasure to be here, Sonoma Lake County Unit, uh, assisting in uh, my capacity. The LNU complex currently is at 368,868 acres with uh, 33% containment. There's been four civilian injuries and we currently have 30,500 structures threatened um, with just over a thousand of those structures being destroyed and 272 that are damaged. Uh, we're very fortunate to have uh, zero first responder injuries. However, in Napa County, there have been uh, three fatalities and in Solano County, there's been two fatalities associated with the LNU complex. Too many fatalities, uh, even though few uh, compared to previous fires, um, but one fatality is too many. Uh, I'm wondering if we could get into the lexicon, but before we do that, I want to get, you know, the, the sense of listeners and finding out what many of the terms that we hear mean. Uh, but I'd, li I'd like to have you talk a little bit, if you could, about what it's what it feels like uh, as a firefighter on the front lines. I mean, there, there's certainly a lot of talk about the rhythm of a fire, and the fact is that I know a morning briefing begins the day for firefighters, but what's involved in that and what does it provide for the firefighters? The morning briefing is actually a very detailed um, plan that's put in place based off of what work has been done in the last 24 hours um, and including what type of uh, resources we're, we need to allocate to each one of our divisions um, or different sections of the fire. The anticipated work for that day uh, addition, additional or reduced resources that would be um, coming on to the fire and set priorities and maintain the focus on the management objectives that are set forth uh, for that day. All, um, all strike team leaders, you know, staying within the um, chain of command and uh, maintaining a span of control 
um, limits the amount of people that attend those briefings. However, uh, after the incident briefings in the morning at 0700 hours, all that information is disseminated to all ground level crews and engine companies working out on the fire. So to maintain uh, you know, safe operations, uh, proper radio procedures, and uh, any difference in aircraft in the air or the radio channels that we, we need to be operating on. And how do you decide, I mean, especially as a public information officer, uh, what the nature of containment is? We hear that word a great deal. How do you measure what containment is? Well, in uh, containment, I would, I, you know, unfortunately, I can't show you a map, but that's all uh, you're able to access that via our public information line. Um, containment is a definition of an area of a fire that we have secured that will fire will not cross over or pass. So uh, we've we've established very well, uh, you know, established dozer lines, um, a, a buffer if um, if that's the right terminology for you um, between the active fire and just plain dirt where there's no vegetation and the fire is not able to you know jump over a road or a natural barrier or um, any of our firefighting efforts that have put in, been put into place. An acre is about 4,840 square yards. Why use that unit of measurement? It's just a, a standardized unit of measurement when we're, we're talking about areas of land. Um, it, it's just very, uh, it, it's very common. You know, it's a it's common terminology within the fire service. And I had mentioned in the introduction about flames backing down and flames laying down. Can you draw that distinction for us, help us understand? When um, you when you hear firefighters refer to a backing fire, it's a fire of lower intensity that is typically in ground level fuels that uh, is basically coming back into itself. So the you know, wind is in the favor of the fire, and it's uh, more of a slow moving fire. And getting back to containment for just a moment, is there a distinction between containment and control? Yes, there is. So um, control of a fire would mean that um, suppression efforts have been put in place and we've stopped the forward progress of the fire. However, um, to officially call it contained um, is it, you know putting in further measures to make sure that if firefighters were to leave that position, um, there would be no further threat from that specific area of the fire that we've, we've called contained. Uh, if you just join us, we're talking about wildfire terminology with Patrick O'Connor, Cal Fire Public Information Officer and Fire Captain for the City of Reading Fire Department. And if you have questions about wildfires and about the words that wildland firefighters use to describe their work, we invite you to join us. Or if you want to actually ask questions about how firefighters stay safe behind the fire lines and beat back the flames, you can also give us a call now and we invite you to do that. Our toll-free number is available to you. It's 866-733-6786. That number again for your calls, 866-733-6786. Or get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email us, forum at kqed.org. And uh, let me just sort of have you uh, clarify some more terminology for us. Uh, I understand that they talk about a fire as having a heel and a couple of flanks and a heart. What does that mean? Sure. Um, every firefighter, every fire, when it starts small, um, we begin by using terminology within the incident command system. So we can we can use that terminology for a small one to two acre fire or a fire like we're experiencing in the LNU, it just gives us the, the ability to expand. So if a fire um, starts initially, the heel of the fire would be um, in the area of where, where the origin of the fire was, where it initially started. And the heel is an area where we begin our initial attack or our hose lays and suppression efforts to make a stronghold at that point in the fire. And then we slowly work to the sides of the fire, which are the flanks. And those oftentimes all depending on wind, topography, and um, you know, other conditions that come into to play. Those tend to be a little bit more active sides of the um, the active sides of the fire. So you know, a left flank or a right flank, as the as the incident expands, we you know give them we give uh, designators as um, divisions or branches when we have you know large scale incidents. And then uh, the head of the fire would be what is the most active? Where is that fire moving? The anticipated direction, um, you know, where where we know not to put, you know, firefighting troops where aircraft is maybe um, needed more than, you know, actually boots on the ground. Again, we're talking about uh, wildfire terminology with uh, Captain Patrick O'Connor. And I want to bring 
uh, Ken Porter into this discussion. Ken Porter is a photojournalist with the Santa Rosa Press Democrat. And Ken Porter, good to have you aboard. Welcome. Thank you for having me, Michael. I appreciate it. Appreciate your being here. And you've been taking photos of fires for quite a while. Well, talk about what it's like in the thick of it. How do you stay safe as a civilian behind the fire lines? All right. Well, there's a great deal of uh, uh, training that goes into it, you know, just kind of studying the weather and uh, keeping in shape and wearing the right gear. Uh, photographers, uh, for the most part, wear all the gear that the firefighters do. Uh, and there's also, you know, you don't you don't have the hose lays or anything like that or the, or the tools, but you certainly have the, the Nomex, the fire shelters, the helmets, everything that they wear to get you safely up on the line. Even then, you're um, you, it's, it's quite hazardous. Uh, and it's not just the fire. It can be the terrain, you know, at night or in the daytime. It's a uh, staying safe is a, is a constant. Uh, you have to have a, a, it's a, it's a it's a constant battle to maintain your footing um, and to be safe. It's it, it can be a challenge. I'm just wondering, though, uh, about well, more about language for a moment, because firefighters need a pretty uh, fast acting plan. And if it doesn't work, they have to have a backup plan. They have to. I think the language is put the fire in a box. What, what does that mean to put the fire well, in a I box? Think there's a, you know, I think when you get like a big fire, like the like the lightning complexes that we're, that we're currently dealing with, I think that, you know, the, these boxes are, they draw secondary boxes and tertiary boxes about where they can keep the fire contained and what, what, um, uh, what natural landmarks or roads that they can use to box the fire in. Basically, it just gives them a plan to what they can shoot for in case everything kind of goes south. Well, okay, we can expand this and, and make it uh, and, 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 and expand the, the evacuation. So they have an idea of, uh, it's a plan of what they need to shoot for to contain the fire. Well, the Hennessy fire, for example, started in a canyon. It wasn't accessible. You couldn't launch a helicopter because of the weather. That's an example of where do you go from there Well, to you know, box it the, in, Hennessy, I mean, yeah. yeah. Yeah, well, the Hennessy fire was an interesting one because it was so inaccessible. And at the time of the fire, there was lightning everywhere. That was the second day of that, you know, the next morning. Uh, and when it came in, it was extremely dry. There was very little rain with it. So the firefighters not only were dealing with the fire in the cannon that they couldn't get to, they were dealing with these uh, these lightning storms, the, these lightning strikes, cloud of ground lightning that were coming down. And so you had to be kind of aware of your surroundings. And, and this, this, this canyon that it was in was kind of on the side of a hill um, and it really wasn't doing a whole lot. It was just kind of skunking around down in the brush and making a run up one side of the hill. But it was kind of, you know, it was it wasn't it was just moderate. It wasn't like a big fire. But when the next round of thunderstorms came in, there was a, a there was one that came directly over the fire and it pushed the fire um, with 50, 50 mile an hour winds over the ridge tops and it pushed it down canyon towards Charles Charles Valley Canyon Road Charles Valley Road. And that's where they made a stand there. And from the fire there, it spotted over the valley and to a couple of different places. And it just, uh, uh, it, you know, I liken a fire, a big complex like this, I liken it to um, uh, mountains where streams flow and there's tributaries to a major river. Fire is like it has fingers and it has tributaries of, of where, you know, it, it's just almost impossible to, to, to isolate a fire that big really, really hard. But you don't, uh, we're coming up on a break here in a matter of seconds here. You don't look at the fire maps. You just read where the smoke is, don't you? Well, you kind of you kind of read the fire maps. You look at where the hotspots are when you go to the, the radar imaging, the MODIS uh, imaging. You go there and you see where the hotspots are. But quite oftentimes in these in these big fires, there's really no, no access in there. So the only way in is to either find the closest access and then walk in with the firefighters. Never go in alone. Talking with uh, our guest, Kent Porter, photojournalist with the Santa Rosa Press Democrat, and with Patrick O'Connor, Cal Fire Public Information Officer and Fire Captain for the City of Reading Fire Department. Join us. Uh, this is learning all about fires and what they do and how they destroy and also the language of fires. We'll talk later about evacuations, and please feel free to be part of the program. 866-733-6786 is the number for your calls. That's 866-733-6786. This is Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. We're talking about wildfire terminology, and with us is Patrick O'Connor, Cal Fire Public Information Officer and a fire captain with the City of Reading Fire Department, and Ken Porter, photojournalist with the Santa Rosa Press Democrat. And 
Captain O'Connor, let me go back to you with a question from a listener named Nancy who asks, uh, well, expresses her concern about the fact that a lot of um, the firefighters don't have masks on, and she wants to know why aren't they wearing masks to protect them from the smoke? That's a great question. We um, oftentimes we're in a in a position where we're not able to wear those face coverings. Um, however, all firefighters are issued what we call a face. Uh, it's a it's a face mask that's made out of Nomex that we have the option to put on if uh, the heat heat and fire conditions dictate that. Uh, we're not wearing a mask out in the open. Uh, you know, I'm not sure if she's asking about COVID masks, but um, the masks in general. What firefighters do is very physical labor. Um, you know, if, if anything inhibits or makes that you know workload more difficult, as you know, putting on a putting on a mask or something that restricts um, normal or normal respiratory activity, and then uh, makes it even worse as our as our physical exertion increases, um, it decreases our um, the the effectiveness of what we can do. And we're used to being out in the smoke. Um, it's something that we're, um, I don't know if we're conditioned to, but we're we're used to and we take it as part of the job. But we do have different provisions that um, if, if the conditions dictate it, we, we will put on uh, those masks that we have and are all I issued. See, uh, excuse me, another listener, Nikki, says, I know the particulates and smoke are very hazardous. I wonder and worry about this exposure as well as exhaustion and other health hazards they face. And that's certainly... Very real. Uh, another listener, Cheryl, wants to extend thanks. Please convey our gratitude to all the amazing fire professionals. And that goes certainly in strong emphasis from many of us who admire the work you do and certainly have a great deal of respect for it. Uh, let me bring a caller on here. Elena joins us. Elena, good morning. Hi, good morning. Hi, go ahead, please. So my question is two-part. Uh, first off, Kent Porter, thank you so much for joining. I didn't realize you'd be on the call today that your work is incredible. I live in the North Bay, and I very much respect you. Uh, Mr. O'Connor, my question is for you, too. One, um, could you describe some of the challenges that go on between fighting a wildland fire in public land versus private land? And my follow-up is, is there any professional alignment or collaboration that occurs between private logging companies and CAL FIRE to reduce some of the fire risk or take some of that load off CAL FIRE? Okay, thank you for those, Elena. We'll go back to you, Captain O'Connor. Our relationships are kept very close. In fact, it's one of our main priorities on the incident is to um, protect economic, natural, cultural, and heritage resources along, along with maintaining relationship with all of our cooperators and stakeholders. So that's the exact function of the PIO offices. We have several officers, not as many as we'd like because the incident's so big, but we have several officers and uh, phone numbers for, for contact. We currently are working with um, state parks in the Armstrong Woods. We have, um, we have liaison that's put in place to be um, directly associated with evacuations with the Sheriff's Department cooperate with the National Guard service members that are being deployed and that are currently down at the Sonoma County Fairgrounds, and also with um, our, the Native American tribes within the area that have, um, that have their concerns with their, their property. And we maintain those relationships, foster them, and ensure that they're a part of, a part of the process because they're going to be the most educated on their concerns and being able to relay them properly to us is an important function of the fire. And a lot of times we take a focus on um, the, the larger aspects of the fire, the, the flames and all the apparatus and everything um, that goes on. But in our morning briefings, every morning at seven o'clock, it is relayed that one of our main missions and goals in the process of uh, putting out a fire is to maintain those cooperations and um, stay in touch with our stakeholders and, and different uh, private agencies that need to be part of the process. And we work side by side with them or, and are uh, proud to be a resource to them and are thankful for their, all their help that they bring to the table. And I thank Elena for her call. Uh, could you talk, Captain, a bit about ladder fuels? Uh, just, uh, again, going to this terminology, because I know in Sonoma and Redding, where you're from, that makes a big difference in terms of defensible space. And maybe we ought to say something about what defensible space is. Yeah, the, the term ladder fuels refers to, um, if you would actually just if, try and in, in your mind imagine um, fuels in height being comparison to the rungs in a ladder. So our lower ladder fuels would be our annual grasses that we see. Maybe a couple more rungs up in that ladder, you would see manzanita, chemise, some of the larger shrub, 
the more um, rungs up in the ladder would be our woodland oaks and larger brush. Those top ladders would be our large, beautiful redwoods that we have in Sonoma and Lake County. And when we talk about reducing those ladder fuels, that um, a fire has a very small chance of progressing into a large, larger scale fire if we reduce those ladder fuels. In other words, if we were able to take out some brush and maintain that 100 feet of defensible space um, on our properties, even though a fire would come through and maybe burn some of those annual grasses that are on those lower lungs of the of the ladder, it it doesn't produce there is less of a tendency to produce the the flame lengths and energy that it would take to ignite those other fuels you know further up the ladder and and cause problems and you know they, it's kind of perpetual if you if you light one rung of uh, one rung of those fuels on fire it's going to jump to the second rung the third rung you know. So if we eliminate a couple of those rungs in the process, I think uh, it, everybody would be doing their job. And that's where that 100 feet of defensible space comes in. We certainly don't want people to uh, moonscape their property and not have beautiful yards, but we want to provide as much education as we can to um, have a defensible space. So when firefighters come in, it gives their homes and us a fighting chance to protect those structures and reduce the risk of fire spread. And I want to bring another caller on with us. Uh, let's go to Victoria next. Victoria, join us. Hi, um, I'm just calling in from Guerneville, and I live in an area that was spared from the fire by some really brave, amazing local guys that um, put a fire break up above the ridgeline of our home. And since these fires are happening so much more frequently, I'm curious what you think about these being permanent fire breaks and what we can do to make that happen for our community. Thank you. Thank you for the question. Go back to you, Captain O'Connor. Uh, although I am here as a PIO, um, I, I don't know, you know, oftentimes we run, and I'm, I'm saying this because I'm from the Reading area and I don't have uh, local knowledge of uh, ordinances and, you know, restrictions on communities or what you're able to do in the backyard. I can certainly say that a lot of the areas that I've um, been out in the field and have been on site with and visited with um, families that um, the, the vineyards provide, you know, a great, fire break. Um, it, you know, it's just very limited fuel. Typically it's green and, uh, those, those type of, those types of areas certainly limit the fire spread in, in those areas. Now, uh, putting in permanent fire breaks, that would be something that falls within your local county ordinance. And I would, uh, maybe suggest that you go to your local fire, uh, fire department or uh, Cal fire, if it's in the state responsibility area to, you know, consider some of those ideas. I think it all starts with, um, just maintaining that good, clear 100 feet of defensible space around your home and uh, good access up and down roads that allows fire apparatus to uh, get into those roads and um, have a fighting chance when it comes to um, the fire, when it gets serious and it's impacting your home. And let me bring uh, Kent Porter back into this, a photojournalist with the Center was a Press Democrat. Uh, Kent, your readers can see flames from the valley floor. What do they often misunderstand about what fires are like when you get up close and personal? Uh. Well, you know, it's it's tough because, uh, you know, last year when we had the Kincaid fire, uh, there were several nights of wind um, and we got a lot of reports of fire down down in the valley that it was in different sections of the of, of the mountains. You know, it's like it's close to Santa Rosa, but it really wasn't a fire at night looks much bigger than it does in the daytime. Uh, it's just it's just a matter of optics. Uh, when you get up close to a fire, uh, especially one like the Hennessy fire or even the, the Wallbridge fire or any fire that I've covered, to me, a fire so, so, sort of sounds like sizzling bacon, a lot of sizzling bacon. And then, a you know, and then, a, a, you know, a, a kind of a whoosh uh, as the brush burns, different, different kinds of brush, different kinds of fuels. Um, but it's a, it's a very menacing sound uh, and it's very hot. Uh, it's not, <laughs> obviously you, you could, you could, you could say that that it's very hot. Uh, when you closer you get to the flames, the more you sweat. Um, it's a, it's much different down in the valleys than it is up when you're on the fire line. When you're close to it and the tree is crowning or brush is crowning above you, you know, 60 to 100 feet, it's a little intimidating and you back off. It's a, it's not something that um, that you should take lightly. When you see a tree crowning and you're on the valley floor and you see a tree crowning you have to realize that tree is probably 110, 120 feet tall, and the flames are shooting up above that, at least that high, if not higher. Uh, when the fire blew into Spanish Flats uh, on the second day of the Hennessy fire, 
that had met up with the Spanish fire. Um, the flame lengths were well over 200 feet in, a, in the canyon near in Spanish Flat, and uh, it's it's very much it's very much intimidating. It's uh, it's not something that you want to stick around and say, oh gee, that's beautiful. No, it's not. It's it's horrendously scary. It, it's 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 got a it's got a it has a fright factor all of its own. Yeah, and you reminded me of the fact, I just want to mention that we're going to be talking about when to evacuate as opposed to, you know, people who take uh, concerns about fire into their own hands in the course of this hour. But I wanted to ask you, Kent, something else uh, that you sort of touched on just a moment ago, and that is things have changed in terms of the diurnal versus the nocturnal. I mean, fires at night now are much more different uh, in terms of, you know, you've got absence of moisture at night and you've got climate change have made impact. Well, you know, I've, I've worked here at the Press Democrat for 33 years, and I grew up in the area. I grew up in Lake County. Uh, for some reason, my dad thought it would be a good idea to, to move to Lake County, and I love it. I love it up there. Uh, but there just wasn't a lot to do in the summertime, <laughs> in the wintertime, you know, except go to school. It was cold and windy and rainy. And, um, and since, uh, since I moved there in, what, 1974, uh, as I became a professional in 1982, 1983, working for the local paper up there, Lake County Record B., um, I've noticed a, a, a tilt in the, the 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 climate up there. It's just something that you know. It's subtle. It's a subtle. It's a subtle change. And I, I believe, from my own personal uh, observations, the 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 climate started to tilt right around 2015 when we had the Valley Fire that, that ran through Cobb Mountain and down into Middletown and into Butts Canyon uh, and into Hidden Valley. I, I noticed an extreme difference in the weather then. And now that I, when I cover fires now, uh, even on the coastal strip, I see the fire behavior at night much different than I used than I used to see in covering other fires. And we've always had those big uh, fires, like the Fork Fire in 1996, that blew up 40,000 acres uh, in one night. But that was an anomaly, I think, uh, in this era. But now you see these fires burning as well in the nighttime as you do in the daytime because of the strong down downslope winds that that we're getting with these fires. Yeah, yeah. It's def- our climate definitely changed, it's and people big... can argue all they want about it, but it's 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 different now on the fire line. It's just not the way it used to be. You know, thank you for that clarity. That's exactly what I was getting at. And uh, the fact of the matter is, you're perfect for this job because you're self-described uh, <laughs> self-described adrenaline junkie and uh, weather geek. So it works out perfect uh, to be a photojournalist, although. You're obviously uh, also putting yourself at much at risk. Uh, I'm just wondering about the kind of uh, flack you get sometimes because you take photos of houses that are burning and then you put them into the paper and some people don't like that. Yeah, some people don't like it. And it's a, it's a real difficult decision. You know, you have to balance that uh, covering the news and showing what's going on in their community. Remember, the people that have evacuated the area have no idea what's going on in their community. And uh, by and large, uh, and there are people I've had long conversations with about why did you photograph my house burning? But I, one anecdote that I have is uh, I photographed a house during the Tubbs fire. It was up in Fountain Grove. It's a beautiful house. Uh, and it was just a two-story house, just a blaze. And it was a, a remarkable, you know, of what fire can do and how it can consume things. And out of that came a woman whose, uh, whose husband had uh, died uh, a few years before um, uh, of natural causes. And, uh, he was a CHP officer, and he, uh, she had kept all of his stuff, uh, you know, around for his mementos. And uh, during the fire, she lost everything. Um, one day, she gave me a call. I don't know how she got my number. She gave me a call, and she said, hey, we're having a ceremony at the local CHP office. Would you like to come down and document uh, me getting these, these, this uniform and these photos and badges that they're going to replace? So, yeah, there's... There are people that, that look at it negatively, but there's also positive effects of of showing people just kind of want to know what's going on. And, you know, a lot of times it can start the insurance process early. My house burned down in the fire. Here's a picture of it. This is what it looks like, you know. So, yeah, it's a fine line. And, and it's really something that we grapple with every day. But there's also an element of news to it that we need to, you know, and all the all the people at the press center are kind of very, very, uh, are very, very, um, conscious of the fact that we are going into these neighborhoods and making these pictures. They're all very good at what they do. Well, speaking about houses burning down and uh, firefighters, uh, there's a story in today's Mercury News about a firefighter on Santa Cruz uh, Mountains who found out on while he was on the line that his own house had burned down. I mean, these kinds of things, unfortunately, also happen and have to be reported, and they're heartbreaking. Uh, 
Let me bring another caller on. Jim joins us next. Jim, thank you for waiting. Join us. Sure. Hey, uh, hello. Uh, quick uh, couple of questions. Um, first is, um, can uh, the captain uh, describe uh, fire containment? Is it a uh, is it a hard science or is it an estimate? Is like a thirty five percent is that an estimate or um, or how, how does that determine? And uh, number two, as a news consumer, I appreciate knowing what LNU is. I keep hearing that, and I, I don't know what that even means. Okay. Let me go uh, back to you, Captain O'Connor. He wants uh, more clarity, I guess, on containment and how it's measured. Hi, Jim. How are you doing? Um, so when, when, we, uh, when we set containment lines, as I reiterated before, um, those are lines that we are very confident that the fire is not going to jump or pass by to where if we need to, needed to reallocate resources to another part of the fire, we would feel comfortable having those resources go to somewhere else or reassigning them to a more dynamic portion of the fire. So when we say that the, the fire is contained, um, that is either with a stronghold of, again, dozer lines, all depending on, um, you know, the fuels, the weather, the topography, that containment line can be anywhere from, you know, something in really, really light fuels that can be a, a line that's put in by a hand crew or it could be something as significant as three dozer lines wide with a, um, you know, with a stripe of fire retardant and reducing fuels on the backside of the fire. So there's no risk of what we call slop over or the fire, you know, coming over that containment line. So a lot of that really depends on those, those three things, the, the fuels, the weather and the topography and where those all come into play is, you know, the topography may be very flat and require something, um, you know, a, a small containment line. However, if we have anticipated weather or a wind event coming in, um, it may may make us widen that containment line. So it's really, um, there's a lot of people that come into play with um, a branch that we, or, or a division of the fire that we call predictive services that they analyze, you know, past fire behavior, past fire movement in the region, along with anticipated weather, how, um, you know, fuel moistures, the type of fuel. So um, the, the firefighting the firefighting world has, has become very cerebral in the fact that there's a lot of things that are really analyzed um, right down to the finest point. Whereas maybe 20 or 30 years ago, we, um, you know, we didn't have all the, the GPS and infrared and um, all the different types of resources that we, we currently have today. And we simply just sent crews in to um, you know, do the best they could with um, you know, clear contingency plans in place. But um, with, our, with the VLATs, different types of air tankers, different types of helicopters that are flying, um, our drones that give us overhead footage, um, the media that's out there as an, an additional resource that we're really proud to work beside that can continually give us um, in, um, intel on areas of the fire that they've been or a structure that they feel might be threatened or has been consumed. Um, but that, that's where those containment lines come in. And Captain O'Connor, you want to know about an LNU fire? We're coming up on a break. Uh, that's the Sonoma, Napa, Solano, uh, and Lake County fire. And perhaps we can talk about that terminology when we return. But we're going to also talk about evacuations and how to essentially protect yourself against fires. And uh, let me thank uh, Ken Porter for joining us. Kent, I appreciate it. Michael, thank you very much. I enjoyed being on. We're talking with Cal Fire Public Information Officer Patrick O'Connor, and uh, we indeed are going to slightly <coughs> shift gears here. But getting back to terminology, just for a moment, Captain O'Connor, LNU and CZU, where do these come from? Those are designators um, through the incident command system um, that designate every, every fire department in the state has their own three-letter designation. So if you were to come to fire camp or you see an engine driving along the road, they will have a three-letter uh, designation that tells you um, what unit they're from. That allows us to track resources a little bit better. And when we have you know a lot of resources like we do on the LNU complex, uh, we're able to use those abbreviations instead of uh, you know writing out writing out each one of uh, each one of those um, fire department names. Um, it, it helps in tracking and and uh, where those units come from and their capabilities. Well, when the flames are bearing down, there are always a hearty few who stay to defend their homes. And firefighters 
urge people to evacuate for their own safety and uh, so that they don't interfere with firefighting efforts. We're going to hear in this segment what it takes to beat back the flames and when you should get out early. Joining us is David Shu, principal of the Wildfire Defense Works in Napa. Welcome, David Shu. Thank you very much for having me. <clears throat> glad to have you and also glad to uh, be talking with Johnny White, the owner of the Pinion Vine- Vineyard Management. Johnny, along with neighbors and colleagues, uh, used bulldozers and water to beat back the flames of the LNU complex fire on Wednesday the 19th. And uh, Johnny White, good to have you with us. Thank you. Can you tell us what happened uh, in the case of your firefighting? Well, um, let me clarify this, is that uh, I've lived in my residence, the north end of Pope Valley, for 20-plus years. And in the last six years, this is the third fire that I have uh, gone through. So uh, the first fire was the Butts Fire, which was 5,000 acres, which started right in front of me, came past my residence. The second fire was the Valley Fire that came from Middletown down and we stopped it behind me. And this fire came from the Lake Napa County line um, behind north of me um, and came came down into Pole Valley. So it started, that lightning strike woke up Tuesday afternoon um, and it uh, was up, we could see it on the ridge line. Uh, they had copters of, Copters going to the other fires, and they, you know, advised the dispatch that it was there, but there were no resources of, available. Um, so as the evening progressed, uh, we moved in two bulldozers, water truck. I I have uh, done my due diligence, and I have plenty of clearing and plenty plenty of uh, defensible space. And so I have a uh, three-inch Honda pump and a thousand feet of hose to defend the, my house and buildings. Um, so as midnight, I think uh, the first engine was into that fire, and uh, we were monitoring what was going on. The first first engine said it was 100 acres, and uh, if they didn't get on it, it would be into Pole Valley the next the next morning. Uh, so with that, we prepared, and uh, the next the next morning, it was cool and it was skunking around up there. And by ten o'clock, the morning sun was on it, and it started to wake up. By twelve o'clock, it was starting to make the move, starting to get a little wind on it. And one o'clock, it was down down upon us. Um, so that was. That's the way it went. So you went into action, uh, and I know it was smoldering. We went, in, we went yeah. into action. Uh, yeah, my, I had a half a dozen people, family members, uh, defended my house, which, you know, was already, it didn't take a lot to defend it from my house because I was already prepared. Uh, my son and I were on two bulldozers surrounding na- neighboring properties, uh, homes, ranches, Um and some we were successful, and some we weren't. You figure you saved how many homes, though? That day, I, uh, probably a half a dozen homes on that day. Um, and how did you decide barns, which barns, How did you decide which homes to save? Whichever ones we get. The first one we went. To, well, first one we went to was not defendable. The fire had gotten to it. We couldn't get all the way around it. It was built up against the hill. Fire was coming down behind it. We couldn't get up there with the dozers. To get around it, it had no defendable space. It, it went up. Um, the fire, the fire, the fire came at us at two directions. Um, with a, with a, in the in the more it started to burn, it started to create its own own wind. Uh, it uh, so we just tried to stay in front of it, and run in front of it. Yeah, there was a few houses we lost um, after we got around them. Um, you know, there wasn't anyone there to defend it. So after we got around it, you know, the, it blew, blew into it or whatever. Um, and uh, the following day, uh, Wednesday, we moved over to the, the uh, 
we everything was black around us, so we moved over to the Edna Springs area and did some structure protection Wednesday. At that time, the fire was going more towards Calistoga than back into Po Valley and Angwin. Uh, Wednesday afternoon, uh, the fire made a got some probably a north wind on it maybe and uh, started bringing it laterally across the ridge towards Angwin. Uh, again, like the previous uh, gentleman said, 200 foot flames, a pretty pretty um, forested hillside that hasn't burned in who knows how many years. And it was, yeah, it was impressive. In a distance, it made the hair in the back of your neck stand up. Uh, Johnny White, it's quite a story, and it's an amazing story. And uh, I appreciate very much you telling it and relating to us what you've been through here. Uh, Kind of heroic in some ways, but uh, also maybe cautionary. Uh, We'll get some responses from listeners, no doubt, and I want to get some responses from Patrick O'Connor and David Chu. But appreciate very much your being with us. Johnny White, again, is over the opinion. I've operated on fires. Uh, everybody that was with me has, has had experience. So it wasn't a bunch of novelists out there trying to fight the fire. No, I understand that. And in fact, l- let me go to you on this, Patrick O'Connor, because uh, there were questions about uh, accounts up in uh, Bonnie Dune, for example, with a lot of people uh, who were experienced. In fact, uh, there have been people who have prepared because Cal Fire didn't have the resources or Cal Fire wasn't there or the engines weren't there, the planes weren't there, whatever. And they got together with members of their neighborhood. They prepared. Uh, there's been a lot of advice coming along those lines. Uh, Jack Cohen, who's a big expert on this, was talking in the uh, Los Angeles Times about how neighborhoods have to band together and communities have to band together. But Cal Fire, of course, gives a lot of caveats and a lot of warnings about this. So help us sort it out. Well, well first of all, thank, thank you, Johnny. I, I don't think there's anything that can replace it, the, the uh, work that you've done. And certainly you put yourself at risk uh, for the benefit of yourself and others. Um, but I, I think the biggest thing that Johnny touched on that um, we should all take away from it is preparation. He said on occasion that um, it was all about, you know, preparing his property. And that's the biggest thing. We don't, we don't want people um, taking an, taking initiative on a fire or starting to evacuate when those evacuation comes in. It's just, it's simply too late to be proactive or, or to be, um, you know, you're behind the eight ball at that point. You want to be proactive. Um, certainly, landscape your property. Uh, vineyards, again, like I touched on, are, are can be great natural fire breaks um, that are always very well maintained. I've um, I've talked to several residents out there that had vineyards. Some of them lost um, lost some of it, but their homes were saved because of those buffers. And um, it, it it's a dynamic that we you know we all want to take care of our own property. I think that's you know that's human nature as it is. Um, we just need to make sure that those efforts as best as we can are coordinated with the firefighting efforts. The last thing we want to happen is um, a public be somewhere where we need to do an airdrop. And we're simply not able to because the fear of injuring people on the ground or we need to get additional resources into a road. But um, they're blocked because the, the public is trying to do their best to save their own property. So um, it's something that we you know, we, we work around, we find a way to um, do our best, but um, our biggest thing and the, one of the things that, you know, triggers those um, evacuation warnings and the um, evacuation orders um, is on the flip side, that allows us to, for, uh, as fire crews, to get into a certain area uh, more quickly and efficiently instead of um, having to deal with a bunch of traffic coming out or people still remaining in their homes. Part of the training that the firefighters uh, go through each and every year is what we call um, wildland urban interface, where we're able to go through. And as we go through a neighborhood or go through these um, you know, back roads, we're able to put a placard on a house that tells us what type of structure it is. Are there people still there? So if we have people um, going back in on property that we've already marked, that we know that uh, you know, we've, we've gone in initially, no one was home, everybody's evacuated. And at some point during the fire, um, those evacuation um, warnings or orders were either violated or someone came in for another piece of property and now they're currently in a situation um, that they need assistance. Um, We're able to look at a map and say, no, a fire engine has already been in there. We've checked that property, there's no one there. But if that information continues to change, we now don't know what's accurate and where to allocate those resources if there is a risk to life. 
Patrick O'Connor again is Cal Fire Public Information Officer. I want to bring David Chu into this, who's principal of Wildfire Defense Works in Napa. And uh, David, uh, let's uh, get your take on this. I mean, it may be human nature, like Captain O'Connor says, to want to protect your place, your home, and so forth. Uh, but those who have the tools and the resources, uh, in some instances, uh, when Cal Fire is not as responsive, uh, or when the resources are cut thin in terms of Cal Fire, uh, uh, they'd rather do it themselves, but there are wind and fire conditions uh, that are pretty much, uh, uh, well, I wouldn't say preordained, but at least analyzed by CAL FIRE that people can't do on their own. In other words, there's so many factors that go into this. Uh, just wondering what your take is. Well, you're exactly right. There are an innumerable number of fa uh, factors that do go into these decisions. And Johnny's story is uh, is quite remarkable from the standpoint that uh, the one thing that he said that is very, very important for everybody to understand is that they had done the work prior to the ignition. Uh, almost all the discussion that we've had so far this morning has all been about what happened after the lightning started the fire. Uh, what I'd like to really focus on, and, and there's way more to talk about than we have time here on this factor, but the, the real successes of what people have done to their homes before the ignition start uh, is the real key to survivability of structures in wildland fires. Could I go uh, right to that with you? Because I'd like to know what you uh, would say, for example, what kinds of vegetation are most likely to burn? I think a lot of people wonder uh, and want to know more about that specifically. Well, there are lots of different variables that determine where uh, and what vegetation burns. I mean, there is uh, there is a li long list of vegetation that is highly flammable, highly receptive to ignitions, will burn with hotter energy and release components uh, and things like that. Um, but the key is really not about the fuel itself as much as the location and the placement of the fuel. So Captain O'Connor did a very good job talking earlier about ladder fuels and fuel continuity. In other words, fire moving through the landscape freely with just igniting from one piece of vegetation to another. If people who live in wildland urban interface areas uh, are very aggressive at their defensible space and break that continuity so that fire doesn't have a chance to burn directly from one plant to another, you start decreasing the ability for that fire to reach the home or the structure and ignite that structure. Where it becomes really critical is the immediate zone right around a structure. What we know now today is that embers, which everybody has seen the ember storms that are blowing around because of these fires, the embers themselves are the ignition cause of up to 90% of every structure that ignites in a wildland fire today. And the efforts, I worked for 32 years with CAL FIRE, and we have accelerated the science and research of how structures ignite in wildland fires. And if we know that 90% of them are all being caused either directly or indirectly by embers, we wanna really focus on how do we reduce the ability for those embers to ignite the structures. So there's a long list of things to talk about in that realm itself to help reduce it. And Johnny made, made a comment earlier about the fact that they had uh, done work ahead of time. And he made a very interesting comment that you asked him, how did he choose which homes to defend or not? And some people had taken the effort to do the work around their homes before the fire started, and some had not. The ones who do take the effort to do the defensible space around their structures and work on what we refer to as hardening the structures. In other words, making the structure very, very resistant to ignitions from those embers can dramatically decrease the uh, likelihood of those structures igniting during a wildland fire, even if no one's there. David, let we, me jump in here for a moment, because uh, when you're talking about embers, uh, I can't help thinking about and, and fortifying against fires uh, a lot of people will talk about sensors and particularly sprinklers on the roof and those extreme winds uh, make it difficult because embers are, uh, I mentioned Jack Cohen before, uh, who's an expert on these uh, whole questions of things like embers. He says embers are, uh, they're like, a, they can be spread around like an airborne virus. Um, 
And, and right. the fact, I mean, I think that's right. A lot of people think, well, if I put sprinklers on my roof and some, certainly in some instances, there are stories where it's been uh, prophylactic and help, but uh, it's not a panacea. No, it isn't. And unfortunately, we live in a rather arid climate. So we don't typically have unlimited water sources to use for those types of things. The power goes out, the water supplies fail. Uh, so it's not a given that that is the perfect solution. Of course, we can find examples where it helped and maybe even caused uh, the survival of homes, but it's more the exception than the rule. Uh, there's a lot to talk about just about that piece of it itself. And, and that piece could be, we could talk about for an hour just by itself, but I want to get another, let me get another caller on here. Bob has been waiting patiently and I want to get him on. Bob, welcome. Yeah, I'm here. And uh, I had a question uh, really similar to Johnny's, I think. My experience is like his. I have rural property up in St. Helena and I have worked on defensible space, uh, reducing the ladders, thinning the trees for many, many years. I have uh, fire lines up there with uh, at least 500 feet of uh, fire hose, a water pump uh, for the pond. But defensible space, all that I've created, it's only uh, useful if somebody is up there to defend it. And if the fire department Cal Fire is not uh, available because they're spread thin in other places, then it's uh, either up to me to uh, to make a stand or decide that it's the conditions are such that I can't stay there. Uh, Bob, thank you for that. We've got about a minute here. Can I go back to you, Captain O'Connor, Patrick O'Connor? Um, yeah, Bob, you're exactly right. It's all about preparation, and I'll just uh, dovetail off of what David David said to you. Are, is, uh, if we create that 100 feet dispensable space and do everything we need to our homes, is that going to um, prevent our home from ever being burnt down? No. Uh, there, there are certain fire conditions that we can do everything within our power to try and control and prepare for that is, um, at times just may not be simply not be enough. So um, continue the diligence, do that uh, preparation before fires and be safe. And we'll leave it there. And I thank you, Patrick O'Connor. Good to have you with us. Appreciate your being with us this morning. And Patrick O'Connor, again, is Cal Fire Public Information Officer. And thank My you, David pleasure. Chu. Good to have you with us. Appreciate your being with us. Thank David you for Chu. having me. David Chu, again, is Principal with Wildfire Defense Works in Napa. And I appreciate you, our listeners, being with us as well. We're here with you Monday through Friday, 9 to 11. Mina Kim, an hour ahead. And you can always let us know what you think about what you hear on Forum or would like to hear by emailing us. Forum at kqed.org. For all of us at KQED, I'm Michael Krasny. Stay safe. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.